The Law School of America The rule in Shelley's case is a rule of law that may apply to certain future interests in real property and trusts created in common law jurisdictions. It was applied as early as 1366 in the Provost of Beverly's case but in its present form is derived from Shelley's case, 1581, in which counsel stated the rule as follows. When the ancestor by any gift or conveyance takes an estate of freehold, and in the same gift or conveyance an estate is limited either immediately or immediately to his heirs in fee simple or in fee tail, that always in such cases, the heirs are words of limitation of the estate, not words of purchase. The rule was reported by Lord Coke in England in the 17th century as well-settled law. In England, it was abolished by the Law of Property Act 1925. During the 20th century, it was abolished in most common law jurisdictions, including the majority of the states of the United States. However, in states where the abrogation has been interpreted to apply only to conveyances made after abrogation, the relevance of the rule today varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and in many states remains unclear. The 1366 application of the rule in common law closely followed Occam's razor, William of Occam's articulation of the problem-solving principle that entities should not be multiplied without necessity. The eponymous litigation was brought about because of a settlement made by Sir William Shelley, 1480-1549, an English judge, on an estate purchased when Sion Monastery was dissolved. The decision was rendered by Lord Chancellor Sir Thomas Bromley, who presided over an assembly of all the judges on the king's bench to hear the case during Easter term 1580-81. The rule existed in English common law long before this case was brought to the court, but Shelley's case gave the law its most famous application. Summary of Rule The rule in Shelley's case provides that a conveyance which attempts to give a person a life estate, with a remainder to that person's heirs, will instead give both the life estate and the remainder to that person. Absent an intervening vested future interest, the life estate and the remainder will merge and the conveyance gives that person the land in fee simple absolute, full ownership without restriction. Suppose Joe has a rich relative who considers Joe careless and imprudent, but who wishes to ensure that Joe's children are provided for. The relative might try to deed a house to Joe for life, and then to Joe's heirs, thus ensuring that Joe and his family could live in the house, but Joe could not sell it to pay gambling debts. The remaindermen in this case are the grandchildren. The rule in Shelley's case states that, this language notwithstanding, Joe is the absolute owner of the property. Issue. When an owner of land in fee simple died, the lord of the fee was entitled to incidents of tenure deriving from the descent to the heir, analogous to the modern-day estate tax. Large landowners who desired the life tenant, who was perhaps the landowner himself, conveying through a straw party, to avoid the estate tax attempted to create a future interest in the form of a remainder in the heirs of that life tenant. It was the intention of the landowner or testator to allow the heirs of the life tenant, once ascertained at the natural expiration of his life estate, to take his purchasers by way of the original executed conveyance, and not by descent, avoiding the tax. Thus, in a basic conveyance absent the rule, for example, O grants Blackacre to be for life, then to B's heirs, there was a life estate in B., and a contingent remainder in B's heirs. The rule converted the contingent remainder in B's heirs into a vested remainder in B. The rule's effect ended there. After that, the doctrine of merger operated on the two successive freehold estates placed in the same purchaser, B's life estate and B's remainder in fee simple, and converted them into a single fee simple absolute in B. B's heirs, necessarily ascertained only at B's death, 
could only take B's fee simple by descent and had to pay the tax. Thus, a conveyance to B for life, then to B's children, where B has living children C, D, and E, does not violate the rule because the class members are ascertained, and new ascertained members may join the class so long as B, the class member producer, lives, plus nine months if he is male. The rule generalized. Simply stated, the rule deals with remainders in the transfer of real property by deed. A remainder is a right carved out of the fee simple which has some future interest so that, at some later date, the holder of the remainder, the future interest, would have ownership rights in the property and those future rights would have to be preserved. The rights could not be sold. It has been explained as an attempt to prevent the sale of property once transferred by putting such limiting words in the deed of transfer. It is a classic example of common law legal reasoning and the logic involved in the interpretation of legal texts which is why it continues to be an important teaching tool in the study of the common law. However, while it is an important interpretation tool, it should not be confused with a rule of construction, such as the doctrine of worthier title, as it is a rule of law. The distinction is that a rule of law cannot be overcome by proof of the grantor's intent, while a rule of construction can be. Analysis Some scholars, such as John V. Orth believe that this explanation, to promote the right to transfer the land, of the origin of the rule is inaccurate. In their view, the rule originated as the court's response to an estate planning technique in the 14th century, long before the litigation in Shelley's case. A tax known as the relief had to be paid to the feudal lord, the crown, when a tenant's heir inherited the land. To avoid this estate tax, if the grant to the land were framed in term of a life estate in the grantee followed by a remainder in the grantee's heirs, then upon the grantee's death his heirs would not inherit the land, but received it as a vested remainder. As a consequence, the heir would take the land without having to pay the relief. The courts could not abide such a transparent attempt to circumvent the tax system, and the rule was invented to deal with this problem by converting these transfers into fees simple absolute so as to allow the relief to be collected upon the grantee's death. Later, when the relief was abolished, the rule continued to survive in the common law due to inertia, it is the genius of the common law to add, but not to subtract, the promote the right to transfer the land explanation was concocted to explain the continued existence of the rule. It is not at all uncommon for rules of common law, once their original motivation falls away, to acquire a new justification, and in the process also, sometimes, a new meaning. Many examples of such processes are given in Oliver Wendell Holmes's A Common Law. As stated by Lord Edward Coke in his argument for the defendant in the case. It is a rule of law, when the ancestor by any gift or conveyance takes an estate in freehold, and in the same gift or conveyance an estate is limited immediately or immediately to his heirs in fee or in tail that always in such cases the heirs are words of limitation of the estate and not words of purchase. In the common law of England, the doctrine of worthier title was a legal doctrine that preferred taking title to real estate by descent over taking title by devise or by purchase. It essentially provides that a remainder cannot be created in the grantor's heirs, at least not by those words. The rule provided that where a testator undertook to convey an heir the same estate and land that the heir would take under the laws of inheritance, the heir would be adjudged to have taken title to the land by inheritance rather than by the conveyance, because descent through the bloodline was held to be worthier than a conveyance through a legal instrument. History of the Doctrine The doctrine of worthier title, like the rule in Shelley's case, had its origin in attempts by royal courts to defeat various devices contrived by lawyers during the era of feudalism to retain lands in their families while avoiding feudal duties, and to secure its free alienability. 
the creation of family settlements designed to preserve land within the family, transfer it without feudal duties due to the lords of the fee upon transfer at death, and preserve it from claims of creditors, occupied the ingenuity of many common lawyers during the late Middle Ages. So did efforts to undo the restrictions placed by ancestors once they became inconvenient. These concerns underlie the explanation given in Coke on Littleton. But if a man makes a gift in tale, or a lease of life, the remainder to his right heirs, this remainder is void, and he hath a revision in him, for the ancestor during his life beareth in his body in judgment of law all his heirs, and therefore it is truly said that heirs s pars antecessories. The heir is a part of the ancestor, and this appeareth in a common case, that if land be given to a man and his heirs, all his heirs are so totally in him as he may give the land to whom he will. The law deemed that since no one is an heir until the person he or she inherits from dies, an attempt to create a remainder interest in the heir created no present interest at all. This interpretation draws strength by analogy from the common words of a conveyance in fee simple to N and his heirs. This conveyance creates no present interest in any heir, why should a remainder do the same? Why it makes a difference? But if the heir receives the same interest in the property that he would have received either way, the doctrine of worthier title would appear at first impression to be a distinction without a difference. The rule divests heirs of interest they seem to have under instruments. The rule makes a difference when property owners make inter vivos gifts of less than fee simple interests. Suppose Adam owns title to lands, is married to Beulah, and executes a deed to Beulah for life, and then to Adam's heirs, Caleb and Dinah. Adam's intent in these words of conveyance would appear to be to grant Beulah a life estate, and then create a vested remainder interest in his apparent heirs Caleb and Dinah. The remainder interest is vested because Beulah is mortal, her death is certain to happen. But, since Caleb and Dinah are already Adam's apparent heirs, their interest under the laws of descent is worthier than the interest they take under the instrument, and the deed is construed as if Adam had stopped with the Beulah for life. This doctrine is further complicated by the fact that although Caleb and Dinah are Adam's heirs apparent, it is legally impossible to determine who is an heir until the death of the grantor. The remainder interest Caleb and Dinah were meant to have in the land subject to Beulah's life estate would have been a vested interest as the conveyance was written, but that vested interest is wiped out by the doctrine of worthier title. Imagine then that Adam then falls on hard times, and his creditors take judgments against him. If the deed were given effect as written, Caleb and Dinah's vested rights to the remainder interest would have existed prior to any judgment liens, and would therefore be prior in right to the claims of Adam's creditors. The doctrine of worthier title, preferring title by intestate succession over title by the instrument, wipes out that vested interest and prefers the rights of Adam's creditors over the rights of Adam's heirs. This illustrates that although the doctrine of worthier title, by its terms, does not affect the right passed from the ancestor to the heir, it can operate to cut off rights of the heirs against third parties. It makes a difference who one's heirs are. The doctrine of worthier title can also affect estates created by will, when those estates are in people who would not take by intestate succession. Suppose once more that Adam is a testator, Adam's good friends in life were Edward and Fran, and Adam's surviving child is Dinah. Under applicable state laws of intestate succession, Dinah would be Adam's heir if Adam had no will. But Adam does have a will, it firstly leaves his land to Edward for life, then to Adam's heirs, and it also contains a residuary clause that leaves the remainder of Adam's estate to Fran. By the operation of the instrument, Edward would have a life estate in the land, while Fran would inherit the rest of the estate immediately, then Adam's heirs, for example, Dinah, 
would have a vested remainder interest in the land, and expect to inherit it upon Edward's death. The doctrine of worthier title intervenes, however, with unexpected results. The doctrine prefers the interest Adam's heirs would have taken to the interest created by an instrument. Here, however, Adam's will designates Fran as his heir at law. Instead of a life estate in Edward, followed by a vested remainder in Dinah, the doctrine of worthier title operates to disinherit Dinah completely, treats the interest of the heirs as a mere reversion, and upon Edward's death gives the land, as well, to Fran. Obsolescence of the Doctrine The doctrine of worthier title can be avoided by naming specific people or classes of people, for example, my children, instead of using the phrase my heirs. As such, the doctrine of worthier title seldom comes into play. The doctrine has also been abolished, either by statute or by judicial decisions, in many common law jurisdictions. In some jurisdictions, the rule survives, but only as a presumption or a rule of construction, that can be rebutted by evidence that the grantor meant otherwise. The Law School of America The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America